Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. In 2021, Martha May Ophelia Moon Tucker, a great-grandmother of 18 and an active participant in the struggle for civil rights, finally had the opportunity to enter a bridal boutique and try on a wedding gown. She was 94. Wow. A young bride in 1952, she was not permitted to shop in bridal stores in Alabama due to the racial segregation laws of the time and place. Instead, Martha May Ophelia Moon Tucker married her husband in a navy blue dress purchased for her by the white woman she worked for. Hmm. She still dreamed of wearing a wedding dress, though, and nearly seven decades later, her granddaughter, Angela Strozier, made this dream a reality. According to her granddaughter, Tucker was overwhelmed with happiness. Oh, I love that story. Sometimes it's just the small things in life that bring us the greatest joy. But this really is not a small thing, is it? No, it isn't. It's a matter of privilege. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is afforded the same opportunities, that's for sure. Yeah, not at all. And the right to marry is not afforded equally in all parts of the world or to all people. That is sad, but true. Yeah. Of course, many people these days are choosing not to marry, too. Someone I know the other day said to me, do people still get married? (laughs) Suggesting essentially, what's the point? Yeah, well, the institution of marriage is just not regarded the same way anymore. According to Joseph Chamey in his article, The End of Marriage in America, marriage in America is at historic low levels, the lowest since 1867 when the U.S. just started keeping marriage records. Wow, I had no idea. And the reason? Well, there are a lot of reasons, Walker, probably too many to cover here. But just think, there have been so many societal changes that just don't favor traditional marriage anymore. There's a greater number of educated women who now value and prioritize their careers. And there have been changing attitudes toward having to be married to have kids. Right. Also, formal religion has taken a bit of a beating lately, so fewer people are feeling the need to adhere to a religious requirement for marriage. And then there are just those people who don't agree with the whole concept. But this is just scratching the surface on the list of contributing factors. It's complicated. It is complicated. There are people, though, who still choose to marry. Megan Luscombe, who's a certified life and relationship coach, believes that marriage provides an element of emotional security to those who view the symbolism of marriage as more permanent. And she states that while in the past people married for many reasons, today it's primarily for love. Ah, yes, love. Mm -hmm. And the wedding is a public celebration of that union. Yeah, exactly. It is. I think there's always been some glamour associated, though, with the big expensive wedding. Right. But it seems in recent years, more and more people question whether it's worth it, especially if you and your partner are paying for it by yourself. Right. The wedding is fabulous, Mm -hmm. but they're pricey. Yep. Now, many of my friends who chose to get married in their 30s and 40s paid for their own weddings. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily inexpensive affairs, but they were mostly smaller, more personal events. Yeah. Yeah. And these are prime home buying years, Walker. They are. Right? You would have to weigh having a big wedding versus putting a down payment on a new house. Or what if you would just rather travel the world? 
having a wedding just might not factor as largely in the priorities of young people these days. Maybe, but a wedding doesn't have to be expensive though, does it? No. It can be smaller and simply more thoughtful and meaningful for the ones tying the knot. Yeah, but large or small, weddings are like putting on a production. There's Mm -hmm. a lot to consider. And of course, the bride's wedding dress plays a central role. Did you ever see the show Say Yes to the Dress? I think I may have seen an episode or two There's so many wedding and bridal themed shows out there these days. I know. I can't keep track. Now, I know that in China, red wedding dresses symbolize happiness and they're kind of a nod to heritage. But do you know why the white wedding dress became such a thing in Western culture? Tell me, Harris. All right, I will. (laughs) According to The Knot, Queen Victoria kicked it all off in 1840. The white wedding dress came to be recognized as a symbol of purity. And before 1840? Well, women just wore the best dress they owned, a special occasion dress. It doesn't have to be a dress, though, does it? Some wear a pantsuit. Yeah, and I've seen some gorgeous wedding pantsuits. But if they do offer a dress, not everyone buys a new one either. Mm. Some wear a dress that was, you know, has been passed down through their family, often reinvented or modernized with the help of a talented seamstress, Mm -hmm. or they can rent one. Yep. But many brides are still opting to buy new, I hear. Of 12,000 couples who married last year and participated in the Not Real Wedding Study, 98% of those surveyed chose to wear a dress. Hmm. And 93% chose to wear a new dress for their big day. Oh. And the average cost? Yeah. $1,900 US. Okay. Well, that's pretty steep. To help us better understand the phenomenon of the wedding dress, we are excited to introduce Jacqueline O, the founder and creative director of The Loft Bridal, an award-winning luxury bridal destination in Hong Kong. Her work and The Loft have been featured in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Monocle, and several other acclaimed international publications. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Jacqueline. Hi guys, it's great to be on this podcast. <laughs> a bit surreal for me, but it's um, it's it's great to to speak to you all. Excellent. Well, Jacqueline, you're a contributing editor to the renowned fashion magazine Vogue, and have had a successful career as a buyer with fashion powerhouses like Givenchy, Celine, and Lane Crawford. How have these experiences inspired and informed the loft, the lab of fairy tales? Um, I think being a fashion buyer has really allowed me to push the boundaries. Obviously, when I started The Loft, I had utilized designer relationships to bring in collections that um, normally a bridal boutique won't be able to bring in. Um, There are actually pieces that the designers create in white that they don't necessarily have a bridal collection will be able to be presented at Loft. And I also think that it's it has allowed me to offer a fresh perspective on bridal and create like a destination boutique that you can't get anywhere else in the world. I think if you have had the experience of searching for a gown, the bridal business is kind of like a dinosaur. It, it, it never actually got updated. So you probably go in and there are all these very classic looks but but we have evolved. So mm-hmm. I felt that um, I felt that as a buyer who has seen you know trends and and been doing luxury buying for so long that I could bring that perspective um, to bridal. 
Well, I got married just a little bit more than 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. I remember it being exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Just rack after rack after rack of white gowns. And they all sort of blurred into one another. And and it wasn't really the nicest experience. So this is really refreshing to know that you've taken a new take on this experience. Yeah. And for us, we're not about, you know, putting as many products as possible in front of your eyes, which is what a lot of, you know, bridal boutiques do. You kind of feel like you go into a supermarket, like looking for that one gown. Um, But we are being that, you know, expert and trying to help create a wardrobe that speaks to the vision of their wedding day. Um, And I feel like my experience as a buyer and as an editor will allow me to do that, make that edit um, before the customer come in. Right. You Um, have that skill already. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, the tradition of the wedding gown and even the search for the gown itself remains a strong tradition today, even crossing cultural boundaries. Why do you think this is? What is it about the power of the wedding gown? (laughs) I think, obviously, this is like the first monumental milestone in a woman's or in a man's life, other than going to college. But you you don't actually celebrate going to, you do celebrate graduating from college with, you know, with, um, with a ceremonial gown. But a wedding gown, it's, it's that one thing that creates the moments. I mean, yeah. we have brides coming in, they try on this piece of clothing and and they cry or they feel like, oh my God, I have not seen, this is like the most beautiful version of myself. And I also think that because there are all these fairy tale stories that we're used to from when we were much younger and every time you get to a monumental milestone like Cinderella mm-hmm. you you transform and, and you wear a beautiful gown so I think that also really pushed this tradition forward mm-hmm. well it's interesting you talk about the transformation mm-hmm. because it, it it is such a critical part and the transformation but still being you right yeah Finding yeah. that 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 best version that balance, of yourself, yeah. like you say. Now you've said that your sole passion is to empower women to create their very own fashion fairy tale down the aisle through curation, discovery, and expertise. How do you assess and support the vision of your clients? Like, how do you go about doing that? That's a big job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When when they come in, they will actually get also a private one-on-one appointment. Um, so whenever they're in for that hour or two hours, the entire store is theirs. Mm. So um, it's quite um, because I feel like, you know, looking for a wedding gown, as I always tell my customer, it's as intimate as looking for a husband. So you're done finding the <laughs> husband. And then now <laughs> and then now you're looking for that gown that you want to walk down the aisle to marry him. So a lot of the times, a lot of brides like to bring a huge entourage. Mm-hmm. And and we usually want to kind of stop that just because it's it's more like a journey. So if you have a lot of voices telling you, no, I don't think that looks good on you. Whereas she actually maybe really, really liked that gown. So she felt like 
kind of muted during that during that time, then we will actually take her into the fitting room because we we do help her wear the gowns. So we'll take her in and kind of calm her down. And we're like, you know, if you want to come back alone, we can accommodate that too. Wow. So you're you're helping her navigate through the process and sort of yes. find her inner self through this process yeah, as well and sort of quiet the voices literally around yes. her. Yes. But we also try to understand, you know, her what her ceremony is, the dates. For example, if you're getting married in Tuscany in, in the summer in, in a chateau versus you're getting a winter wedding in Ireland, in, in a castle, or you're going to Phuket in a beach. Right. Even though you're the same person, you will have very different choices because of the weather, because of the of the setting and, and whatnot. So we kind of help iron out concerns, talk her through the process. For example, mm-hmm. if you're in Phuket in you know 100 degrees, you're not gonna choose a long sleeve gown that's super heavy. So there are these practical points that they might not think about because everybody might might be just getting married for the first time. So so they don't think about these things. So we kind of clue them in to consider these. It's very customized and and bespoke, isn't it, Jacqueline? Yes, correct. From every touch point, I mean, even if you send in an email today wanting to book an appointment, we already asked them the date, um, if you have a venue, and and if they have an idea of, of what they like. Sometimes we have brides who, you know, dreamt of something for the past 20, 30 years right. and, and wanted to come in. And sometimes they, they try on that dress and they don't love it. <laughs> and they yeah. might get so emotional about it. And, and we're like, you know, you've been looking at catalogs or, or watching cartoons and TVs and you might not like that princess dress anymore. Me and my team, we sometimes consider ourselves like um psychologists <laughs> yeah they're gonna absolutely. like talk them through things and and obviously we, we'll get difficult family members <laughs> that we want mm-hmm. to translate what they want as well it's managing expectations yes. and emotions and you know the the peripheral family and friends yeah. and because it as you say it is such a monumental transition in somebody's Mm -hmm. life that you're helping them navigate and you do want them to feel very comfortable and extremely confident when they're when they're about to enter into that uh, that new union in their life so I wanted to talk a little bit Mm -hmm. more about the collections that you bring in Mm -hmm. because you feature both very well established wedding gown designers as well as rising stars yeah why do you think it's important to have such a versatile bridal collection? I think because bridal or in general fashion is a very personal choice. We in general have a, a vision of, for me, it's a more fashion forward and design led boutique. But in mm. that criteria, there's still a lot of different, a lot of different designers. So I think having rising stars are important because um, they usually they're young and they usually bring a fresh perspective. Whereas with the you know very well established designers, you can trust them on their craftsmanship, 
on their techniques and everything. So with Rising Stars, sometimes I like to watch them several seasons just to make sure that, you know, craftsmanship wise and delivery wise, um, they are on par with a well-established brand, especially during, you know, COVID. On-time delivery, especially for bridal industry is super important. Very Um, important, I would imagine. Yeah, you really can't miss a date. Do you find that younger brides tend toward the rising stars or, or towards the more classic and traditional, or is it kind of all over the place? I think it's all over the place, actually. Um, but we mm-hmm. tend to attract because we're known in the fashion industry and, and fashion is all about, you know, chasing for the new. So brides actually come to us for, for the rising stars. Right. But then there are also a type of brides who only trust, you know, the craftsmanship of a more established brands. Then mm-hmm. we will um, show them. Um, different pieces but nowadays you know weddings are not just one day sometimes if a destination wedding is like throughout the weekend so Mm -hmm. some brides might go for a very well-established brand for the main gown like the most important one but then Mm -hmm. go for some after-party dresses for rising stars because they're more fun right and you can help them with all of that so if you do have a three or four day event you can supply their fashion needs for the duration Yes, correct. And we also have accessories. So during the appointment, we can show them how it could be styled. We could show them how you could do your hair like this. And then there's a veil, which works really well with this gown. If you don't want to go for a veil, you can go for these hair accessories. Although it's quite a curated collection, we do have a full range of categories that the brides can explore. So it's really from start to finish, a bride entering into the loft is not going to want for anything. You and your staff will be there to answer any of those outstanding questions, because not all of us, including myself, knows what (laughs) is best in terms of my hair and my accessories. I might have some instincts about the gown, um, but you really do need that support to create that full picture. Yeah, and we're also the more objective party, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because I think with friends or with, you know, family, sometimes they're quite emotional or quite subjective that, especially with moms, they've seen their daughter this way and in this Mm -hmm. light. And and so they they can't really, you know, jump out of that and and Mm -hmm. see her in another light, maybe. So we'll have to kind of help her through it. And, and because of our expertise, our brides really trust us. And sometimes people may be not inclined to maybe tell the bride the truth too. There may be some mm-hmm. apprehension that there may be yeah. better options for mm-hmm. her and family members may not, you know, be so readily um, interested in doing so or comfortable to do so. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, so we, we're as honest as we can be. I mean, we can't be like so brutally honest, but, <laughs> but we, we are as a business, we're super honest, actually. It's, it's an important milestone. So we, mm-hmm. we don't want to, because we want to make a sale and, and just sell her something that we don't actually think looks good on her. Um, I think we need more honesty in this world. I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a, a huge part of, of the service. Now, in terms of your availability, how mm-hmm. far out does a bride need to reach out in order to, 
you know, make that first appointment and get the ball rolling? Um, for the weekend slots, they're a little bit tighter. Um, okay. I would say about three weeks to a month. Okay. Um, um, but then for weekday slots, we are a lot more flexible. So they can really plan plan ahead and, and make those arrangements and make sure that they have yes. a, the advantage of your expertise. Yeah. We actually have a lot of brides who travel from abroad to come to see us pre-COVID. And then now that Hong Kong is open last month, we have Thais, we have Americans, we have Filipino. Um, so we're very excited. And and a lot of times they were like, you know, we followed you for three years and we couldn't come to Hong Kong. And now that the borders are open, we're just coming here. So um, we're super grateful to, to have that support. My husband and my son are actually in Hong Kong right now. Oh, and, okay. Uh, yeah. And they said, you know, it, it's almost um, like the, the city is breathing fresh air because yeah. it's been been some time since people from abroad have been able to come and shop and just experience the life there. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place. So the three years of COVID kind of become a blur. <laughs> it's it is. It's like waking up from a nightmare. The world yeah. is is still waking up and probably will be for for some, for time. some but time. But regardless, yeah. the mm-hmm. loft was established just over five years ago. And yeah. in this fairly short amount of time, you've managed to establish an incredible reputation as a leader in the field of luxury bridal fashion. And you've captured the attention of many international fashion publications. So you've accomplished what it would take years for other boutiques to accomplish in such a short amount of time and in spite of COVID. Mm. So what do you attribute your rapid success to? I think what I did it's so different from what the bridal world has been offering. And even though during COVID, there were times that I was like, you know, am am I really doing the right thing? You know, because as, as you know, you know, being an entrepreneur is like one day it's great. And then the next you feel like you're falling off the cliff. <laughs> I know that feeling feel- well. <laughs> I also feel that, you know, I have a very strong support system so that my family and and a few of my friends, they're, you know, always really believing in my vision and telling me that I should believe in it. So I kind of just stick to my guns and, and I mm-hmm. believe that, you know, this is what people like. And even though now maybe they're not so receptive to this concept, but eventually they will see the light or, or I will find my niche. Um, mm-hmm. I think for me being quite a niche, you know, I have quite a niche curation of designers w- was very helpful because I, first of all, as, as a startup, we don't have the investment to actually invest in a vast amount of designers. And, and that was not my vision in, in the beginning either. Even if I have had that money, I wouldn't be doing that. So I kind of stick to that. And I think, you know, publications like to talk about a great story. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we do have the ingredients for, for a good story. So, and, and publications also help me formulate my story because in the very beginning I it wasn't always about you know this being created by a fashion buyer because I've been a buyer for 10 
15 years and I've met buyers and I didn't think it was a cool job. I just think, you know, this is a job that I love and, and, you know, everyone around me was doing the same thing. So I didn't think it was cool until I meet a few publications like Harper's Bazaar. They only want to talk about the fact that I was a buyer and this is a buyer concept and and several of the other magazines as well then I realized oh actually this is my selling point um that I thought was you know so normal but this is actually my selling point so then I started not rebrand but I kind of highlighting that fact yeah Mm. exactly um so I think press helped and and obviously I was I was very lucky that they they noticed me in the beginning and then mm-hmm. they kind of helped me build a more convincing a more appealing story I mean even we were just saying before we started the interview you know mm-hmm. how we discovered you and and really your boutique and yourself are are well established I would say as leaders in the field Um, And because you are on the leading edge, you are innovative, you are sort of turning the experience of shopping for a wedding gown uh, on its head and in a very, very positive way. So I think that uh, I think you are going to enjoy continued success. I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. My daughter is not quite there yet, but I'll I'll bring her over when she is because I know she will receive wonderful, wonderful care. Yes, please. Yeah. And anytime if you come to Hong Kong, please email me and and I'll love to show you guys around. Oh, we we would love that. We would love that. So thank you so much for chatting with us today, Jacqueline. It was such a pleasure speaking with you and really educational as well. If you would like to learn more about The Loft, you may follow on Instagram at at The Loft Bridal or visit the website at www.theloft-bridal.com. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Jacqueline is exceptional. The wedding industry clearly is alive and thriving. Is it ever? And the United States is said to have the most expensive market in the world. Hmm. Rarest.org reported, though, that the most expensive weddings in the world didn't actually take place in the United States, but in England and India. And there was one whopper that took place in Dubai in 1981. Hmm. It was the wedding of Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed bin Sultan Al Nayan and Sheikha Salama bin Hamdan Al Nayan, which cost at the time $100 million, which is approximately just over $310 million in today's money. And one of the most watched weddings, can you guess what it is, Walker? I think I know. Yeah, Lady Di and King Charles tied the knot to the tune of $48 million in 1981. Again in 1981, that was the year of weddings. Hmm. So well, over $110 million today. It was the most pricey English wedding ever in England. But maybe it was the 27 wedding cakes that had something to do with it. Well, Will and Kate's wedding, which cost $32 million in 2011... Seems like a real bargain now. It does. But while we're talking about the biggest, but not necessarily the best, let's talk about the longest bridal dress train. Any idea who claims this title? Was it Lady Dies? No, but her train was pretty substantial. It mm-hmm. was 25 feet long and her veil was 153 yards too. Ah, uh, uh, her veil. I'm mixing the train up with a veil. Yeah, that was such a gorgeous wedding. Anyhow, according to Guinness, the longest train was 8,095.4 meters long or just over 26,000 feet 
which was on display at a wedding in France on December 9th, 2017. Donated lace was sewn together by 15 volunteers over the course of two months. Wow, that's a serious tripping hazard. I know. I've got one for you now, though. According to Guinness again, the largest wedding bouquet was created this year on January 22nd. Mm. It belonged to Angelina Sky of India and featured 9,400 flowers and was 136.7 meters in length. Oh my God. Did she carry that? You would need some <laughs> serious arm days to prep for carrying that kind of bouquet. And maybe throwing that thing might not be a good idea. It might be a little ill-advised, right. cause some people some injury there. I know, right? Mm-hmm. So where did the whole tossing the bouquet ritual start anyway? Well, according to The Knot, which is the go-to source for wedding planning, it started in England. Okay. Female guests at weddings would attempt to tear off parts of the bride's wedding bouquet and wedding dress for good luck. Yikes! The dress? <laughs> That seems a little frightening and a little much. I know. That would not make me a happy bride at all. Not at all. So I guess the throwing of the bouquet distracted the crazy women who are trying to rip your dress off for good luck charms so you could make an escape out the back door. Is that it? Over time, the lore developed that to catch the bouquet foretold who would marry next. Right. My baby sister actually caught mine, and she was 16 at the time, so I'm sure there were a lot of disgruntled bridesmaids looking <laughs> on there, but who caught yours, Walker? Oh, I can't remember. You know, I was probably too tired and too many champagne cocktails by that point to remember. Right. So let's talk about the cake. It's usually a showstopper that reflects the two people tying the knot. Right. Have you ever heard about the tradition of keeping the top tier of your wedding cake and eating it on your first anniversary? I have. That seems to fly in the face of food safety, though, doesn't it, Walker? Unless you freeze it, Harris. Okay, okay. But supposedly this was a really popular practice in the 19th century, and people saved it, that top tier, for their first child's christening. Like, how long is that? Well, people had children super fast after getting married. I know, but did they have refrigeration, Walker? (laughs) This is grossing me out. I can tell you I did not save my cake. I actually don't even remember my cake, but it would have been a pain bringing it home from the Bahamas. But check this out. The world's oldest complete wedding cake is a four-tiered cake made in 1898. Wow. I know. So whose wedding cake was it and why wasn't it eaten? Okay. Well, it was created by Baker C.H. Philpott in Basingstoke, England. It served as part of a window display for 66 years. Wow. And then when the bakery closed, it was moved to the Philpott home. And then it found its final resting place in 1995 at the Willis Museum. I love stories like this. It must have been a fruit cake. Yeah. I'm thinking that. Those cakes can last forever. Mm-hmm. I went, I once found one tucked away at the top of my kitchen cupboard when we first moved into our first house. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? A fruit cake? Mm-hmm. Was it, it was, a housewarming present? <laughs> it was huge as well. It was wrapped up in a bag at the top of her cupboard. I think they just forgot about it. Did you eat it? No. Although fruit cakes aren't popular today, they were the traditional choice for cakes for a long time. Now, when I got married, we ordered a fruit cake. The Mm -hmm. cake maker told me that for every hundred cakes they make, only one request is made for a fruit cake. Is it the fruit cakes who <laughs> request the fruit I cakes? I think so. Okay, I think so. Okay, maybe. <laughs> Apparently, the world's oldest cake has some tremendous staying power, which I think is frankly somewhat frightening. Even though it's discolored, over the years, it only has gotten one crack in hmm. the icing, which was caused by a bomb strike in the town of Basingstoke in 1940 during World War II. 
Apparently, it was found to be still moist inside when it was donated to the museum in 1995. This is triggering my gag reflex, Walker. (laughs) So did they have to do anything to ensure preservation going forward? Yeah, they apparently needed to dry the cake to keep it from getting fragile. So they did that with silica gel. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer a tasty snack. And then it was strengthened with a substance like glue, which was injected into the cake. Wouldn't you love to see it, though, Harris? Mm, Yeah, maybe. We really need to make plans to visit some of these weird and wonderful things we mentioned in our episodes. I know. We really do. Someday. Someday, Walker. So, did everything go as planned on your wedding day? Well, it was pretty chill, aside from my nerves. Uh, It went off without a hitch, I would say. Definitely no uninvited guests interrupting the ceremony or drunken people wandering around making a scene. But that's the beauty of a destination wedding. It keeps all the riffraff at bay. (laughs) What about you? Uh, Just a little hiccup. I chose to have these uh, wreaths of lilies on the front doors of the church to greet our guests. But I found out later that someone from inside the church opened up the church doors and propped them up and thought it would be very nice to welcome the people with open doors, Mm. not knowing the wreaths were tucked behind. So nobody saw these beautiful wreaths. Mm. Um, They're pretty pricey. So it stung a bit. Yeah, that's such a shame. I would say that was the only issue. After the wedding, though, we stayed the night at a local hotel before we headed out on our honeymoon. And guess who forgot her change of clothes? Mm -hmm. I had to leave the hotel in my wedding dress. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. I bet you got a lot of looks. Wow. Yes. I wasn't happy about it at all. (laughs) That's for sure. Well, at least you got to wear it another time. Get a little use out of it. We did also have a little extra drama leading up to the wedding. A friend of mine told me that my first mistake was thinking that the wedding was just about me and my husband when really it was about friends and family. Uh, I hope that was a joke. That's a little narcissistic, no? I mean, friends and family should be considered, of course, but the priority? Well, I think it was meant to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, what do you think of this story? A wedding guest recounted their recent experience on Reddit. Apparently, they were expected to stand in a river throughout the wedding ceremony. Oh, They said the minister and the couple getting married stood on land, but all the guests were asked to stand in knee-deep water for the entirety of the ceremony. Um, that sounds stupid, (laughs) but kind of funny. Right. And this just wasn't a still pond either. The water was rushing. Children and a couple of older guests stood up to their ankles as the water would have been too high and carried them off. Did they have to wear life jackets? (laughs) I don't know. They that would ruin that. my wedding outfit. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> Apparently, this did not sit well with the partner of the bride's brother. And to quote them, I'm sure it made for great photos, but I personally really dislike mud, germs, insects, and whatever diseases are found in that stream. Mm. This guest refused to go in the water. The bride and groom wouldn't start the ceremony until everyone was in the river, though. So it became a huge kerfuffle, which delayed the wedding by half an hour. And needless to say, the road guests was persona non grata with their spouse and everyone else after the party. Yeah, well, that's not totally surprising because people hate waiting and they were having a bit of a negative impact on the couple's special day. But like, I kind of get it. River (laughs) bottoms can be gross and icky. Anyway, what were the comments like on the post? I'm sure pretty interesting. Yeah, most were in support of the guests, but a few thought that the individual was making too big a deal out of it. Yeah, I guess the real problem is the fact that that guest was not prepared. If you knew about this river business and you didn't want to stand in it, you could have canceled or come late 
Or at the very least, <laughs> worn your swimsuit and water shoes. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. And, and maybe the bride and groom would have done better to understand that standing in the river is not for everyone, right? I know. It seems a little navel-gazing <laughs> to me. But maybe there was a bridezilla factor involved. Ah, yes. The bridezilla. Mm-hmm. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, a bridezilla is a woman who is getting married who becomes difficult and unpleasant to deal with because she wants to control every aspect of her wedding. I don't understand the difficult and unpleasant bit. Mm -mm. I know that there can be a lot of stress juggling all the decisions, expenses, and keeping everyone happy. But you weren't a bridezilla, were you, Walker? I can't imagine that. No, no, no. Not like the brides mentioned in the article, Batshit Crazy Hall of Fame, (laughs) the five biggest bridezillas we've ever seen on (laughs) Glamour.com. Time to buckle up. That's a pretty telling (laughs) title. I know, I love it. I'm going to mention just two or three here because they're just too good, okay? (laughs) One bride told her bridesmaids that they would not be in the wedding party party if they couldn't afford to pay to go to Vegas for the bachelorette. Ouch. I know. That's a really rude, a little unreasonable, because not everybody has the financial resources sure. to do such a thing. But another bride, get this, wanted all of her bridesmaids to lose weight for the wedding, which is rude enough as it is, but not so much that they ended up skinnier than the bride herself. I'm sure that happens a lot. Do you think so? <laughs> I think so. I am sure of it. Like you would ask people, hey, listen, can you drop 40 pounds for my wedding? But there's, not 45 because... There's some pretty crazy people out there. Is she weighing them all to I make sure? Know. I don't know. I think it's totally, totally rude. And yet another one, another crazy bride requested cash gifts from her bridesmaids uh. In advance of the wedding. In advance of the wedding. That's in such poor taste. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Beyond. And weddings are as unique as the architects who design them Mm -hmm. though, aren't they? Mm -hmm. A bridezilla's wedding would be something to behold, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Lots of crazy drama. It might be kind of (laughs) entertaining. But it's not just the brides who misbehave, is it? Mm -mm. There's no end to the stories of badly behaved grooms, mother-in-laws, members of the wedding party, and guests. Yeah. And you know, there's typically a lot of booze flowing. So Mm -hmm. the likelihood of things to get a little off kilter is pretty good. Cosmopolitan.com reported one woman's story, and this is a doozy. (laughs) She had attended her best friend's wedding, and her best friend was marrying a twin. Okay. Can you see where this is going? Yes. After a few (laughs) drinks, the woman started making out with the groom's twin. Hmm. But when her best friend walked in on them, as they were in bed doing nasty things, the woman discovered it wasn't the twin. It was the groom. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So are the best friend and the bride still BFFs? No, no, it did not end well. However, the two who were caught in bed, so the BFF and the groom, were engaged to be married at the time of this article in 2017. No. Yeah. The original bride cannot be happy Mm-mm. about that. I wonder if she made a guest appearance at their wedding. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> That's a really good question. Now, do you know where the term tying the knot comes from? Yeah, I think I've actually seen it, like in a documentary or something. It's the tying of the hands of the bride and groom to symbolize the commitment that the couple shares. Okay. So would you consider yourself to be a traditionalist when it comes to wedding ceremonies, Walker? I think I can guess, but... 
I do consider myself quite a traditionalist when it comes to weddings. Mm -hmm. I did the whole thing, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And I would never wear white to someone else's wedding. Right. Whether it's old fashioned or not, I'm careful not to rain on someone else's parade. And Mm -hmm. it's not my day when I've been invited as a guest. So I feel it's important not to offend or show up the wedding couple. Yeah. What about you? Well, I'm a bit of a mix. I did do the whole old, new, borrowed blue thing too, but ask me if I remember what those things were. Right. Not. I don't either. Not a clue. We stayed pretty close to tradition though in our own wedding, despite being married on a beach. But I really think it's all about the vows and less about the trappings or the setting of the ceremony. Now, I kept my dress, but not properly boxed, just in a bag. And I'm sure it's yellow in poor condition. I haven't looked at it in 21 years. Did you keep yours? I did. And I actually had it adjusted a couple of years ago to go to a wedding dress party where all the gals wore their wedding dresses. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the guys had to wear their wedding suits, but (laughs) that was probably a good thing. Um, But I'm thinking now I'll probably get the train removed and make it into something I can wear more often. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. So about the old tradition of not seeing your partner before the ceremony, did you stay out of sight the day of your ceremony before the wedding? Well, we couldn't really because we were sharing a hotel room. But once he left for the day, the next time I saw him was on the beach looking Hmm. pretty nervous. How about you? (laughs) Well, we did spend the night away from each other. I spent the night with my bridesmaids at one of their homes. Oh, that's nice. Now, this tradition is rooted in practice of arranged marriages, right? Yeah, apparently so. Again, according to The Knot, this amazing resource for all things marriage and wedding, couples were kept from seeing each other prior to the wedding so that if they didn't like each other's physical appearance, too late to call it off. (laughs) But that doesn't seem very fair, does it? Not at all. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't talk about weddings, though, without talking about the rings and particularly why we wear them on the left hand on the fourth finger. Mm. Actually, some cultures, I think, wear them on the fourth finger on the right hand, too. That's right. Yeah. Supposedly, it was believed that a vein in that finger on the left hand connected the finger and therefore the ring with the heart. Oh, that's kind of cute and kind of disgusting all (laughs) at the same time. It is. Yeah. So we've spoken quite a bit about superstition and tradition for a lot of this episode, but let's break away from all of that for a minute. Excellent idea. Okay. So I came across a pretty interesting BuzzFeed article that featured people who have planned non-traditional weddings. Okay. So tell me, I'm curious. Okay. So there's a lot of what you might expect, a lot less formality, weddings that occur in the morning, One couple, and this one I love, even had breakfast food for dinner. Brinner. Brinner. (laughs) Who doesn't love Brinner? And there's a lot of backyard and barn weddings. Barbecues are also very popular. A lot more casual ceremonies. And that makes it maybe a little bit more affordable as well. Right. And so lovely to be surrounded by nature. Yeah, unless you're standing in a river. Yeah. Right? But this is one I think you're going to really love, Walker, and maybe you're going to regret not doing your own wedding this way. (laughs) So what about being married by a wizard and cutting your cake? (laughs) Cutting my cake with what? A sword. How do you like that, Walker? Do you like that? That's different. Do you think David would like that? Uh, No. (laughs) Or what about a Halloween-themed wedding? Ooh, easy to plan your outfit for that one. You just pull out last year's costume. Exactly. No buy a dress or shoes or any of that. Yeah, don't go to any trouble or expense. <laughs> one person went so far as to recreate their first date for their wedding, which involved going to a Mexican restaurant followed by karaoke. And that sounds like a really fun wedding to me. And creative. And creative. But of course, some of the wildest stories come out of where else? 
The wedding chapels of Vegas. Of course. Yep. Getting married in Vegas is a thing. And it has been for so long. Some people just prank their families by pretending to have a shotgun wedding. But a lot do plan their nuptials there in Sin City. A lot of last minutes and remarriages. But they're all definitely memorable. I came across one story retold by Lillian from the Little Vegas Chapel who recounted that they had a guy who got married to his iPhone. Really? Yeah, he wanted to prove a point apparently that, you know, people are really addicted to technology. So he had this whole ceremony with his iPhone. Lots of press showed up. But of course, it was more symbolic than being legitimate. Okay. Right? I wonder if their cell phone provider was the best man. Please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for some people, the idea of eloping together and getting married without the typical hoopla of a wedding is very appealing. I know. I tried to elope, but it was a big fail. According to a 2023 Newsweek article, a Kansas jewelry shop surveyed 1,000 engaged couples in the U.S. and 62% of those surveyed said they would consider eloping. And the main reason? The cost. I could see that. Yeah. There were other reasons, of course, as well. Like, what if your family hates your finally and forever? So why did you want to elope? Your parents love Greg. I know. Well, we just didn't really want the whole hubbub. Greg is an introvert. And believe it or not, at that time, I was not keen on the spotlight either. And of course, the cost. We were just starting out in life and we couldn't afford a big wedding. And we just weren't very churchy. Well, before we tie the knot on this episode, I have to know what your wedding song was. Okay, well, we didn't do the formal after party and the first dance thing, but our good friend Darren filmed the wedding and set it to Green Day's Time of Your Life. That became our song. What about you? Etta James at last. Aw, that's a classic. Very romantic. It is. My husband was almost 40 when we got married and I was 32. So everyone thought it was quite appropriate. (laughs) At last. (laughs) So do you want to hum us a little to wrap this episode up, Walker? Put a champagne cork in it there, Harris. Forget it. (laughs) Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you.